Hello, Peter C. Hine here. The episode that you're about to listen to is the second part of a two-part interview, so if you haven't listened to the first part, I'd strongly recommend that you go back and listen to that. If you have listened to part one, then you'll know that the sound quality on this interview isn't quite up to our usual quality. This was just due to the technical challenges of recording with someone who was over 4,000 miles away, so apologies for that. But on the bright side, the difficulties that we experienced on this interview has led us to completely overhaul our recording setup, and we were able to do that because so many of you have bought the Vase soundtrack, and Buckley generously puts 100% of the proceeds of that album back into the podcast. Yeah, doing Vase costs us money, uh, but we're determined to keep it free. We don't have any Patreon at the moment, and we don't just ask for money on the podcast. But if you do want to support us, go to vase.bandcamp.com and download that album, and that way we get a bit of extra cash to continue to cover our costs, so we're happy. You get the excellent album, so you're happy, and Buckley just enjoys making the music, so he's happy too. So basically, everyone is happy. So that sounds like a good deal to me. Anyway, all that said, our guest in this episode was truly excellent again, and in this episode he goes into some really deep stuff, some really weird stuff, so I won't keep you any longer. Enjoy. I'm Peter C. Hine. And I'm Stephen James Buckley. Well, whilst we were looking for secrets within the the uh, secret cipher, um, I um, obviously we talked earlier about Terry Arist, um, and I put his name through the cipher uh, because um, in when you first did Hellier, there was kind of rumours going around that there was no Terry Rist and that you know that you'd made him up, which I don't think is correct, and the people in Hellier didn't think was correct. But I was going to ask you whether um he is like olaf i think at some point suggested that he was uh, some sort of ascended master or something that, that that terry was something other than human i put his oh. name into the cipher and got a, a value of 192 um, which comes out as he is not there he is a king concealed is infinite have a secret glory all this and a book to say how which to wow. me jumped straight into the middle uh, and, and suddenly it makes sense that you included his interviews within the cipher because he seems to be somehow uh, structurally significant to it through this reading. That's interesting and it's also interesting. I don't tend to run names. Personal names, 
don't seem to yield anything. It's the weird names, the funny names. There's an interesting name I found in, um, I don't know if you've heard of the Todd Morden UFO case in the UK. And it was um, it was one, one where the, uh, a man was found on top of a pile of coal and he had uh, three, he was dead and they found him one morning and he had three little holes in his forehead and his head had been shaved and his clothes appeared to have been, it looked like he'd been uh, redressed after he had been killed and there was no way he could have got on this pile of coal he had no coal on him there was no markings on the coal or anything to suggest it the next day um the policeman who investigated it saw a ufo so tobberden's a place of interest to us it's quite close to where we live we've been there before it's a big ufo hotspot in the uk and the man's name who disappeared was zygmunt adamski so Adamski story too. So exactly. That's what I'm thinking. So that ties in with something I've heard you say before about, um, yeah, like you said, Yamsky and George Adamski and Zygmunt Adamski is not a common name in the UK, but I'm wondering if, uh, Zygmunt Adamski would, would, uh, bring up some interesting results in the cipher. It might. I mean, that sounds to me more like a, except for the UFO sighting afterwards, and that may have been because of uh, predisposition to manifest the UFO because it's a weird case, but it sounds more like a cult murder to me than than like something that uh, is atypical of ufology. I can only think of that Canadian case, the Nicolac, that, uh, you know, you had this, these weird burns. He survived, I mean, but that's... uh, And then there's the case of the two guys in uh, Argentina. No, 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 no. It was in Brazil that had the yeah. masks on and uh, killed themselves or were killed. Uh, and that strikes me as somewhat similar. Those are UFO-related cases, but uh, that's rare. That's really rare, at least insofar as anything that I ever run across. And I, I scan for these things through four or five different news feeds every day. It's just what I do. That's who I am. Yeah. It's great. We're glad that you do because you share it all on Twitter and we get to read it. So, Yeah, we both follow you on Twitter and I recommend that all our listeners do too because there's some really good stuff on there and I'll link to your Twitter in the show notes. Um, You share a lot of articles about scientific discoveries, uh, archaeological finds and occult topics, but also you've been talking a lot recently about a new book, which is really exciting. So when is that book due to be released? This new book is really hard. Uh, people keep asking me, when is it going to be out? Because I made the mistake of, again, letting the cat out of the bag. But uh, <laughs> uh, I thought it would you know, be done by the end of this year. Not happening. Um, is it a continuation of the Cypher? Is it the third part in the trilogy of the Cypher books? Yeah. It, 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 it was originally meant to be a, a trilogy. This is something you're probably interested in. But I got to talk between volume one and volume two. That's why they're 10 years apart. I was in the OTO, and that was during my 10 years where I was into being into the OTO. Also, see, uh, the, the, the version that you have with the two books is actually a book. I intended it to be, yeah, the complete secret cipher. It's as complete as of right now will be, I don't know whether... The third one will be incorporated into that book or whether it will be a standalone, but it will be in that cycle because it will 
be, as the second book is more about ritual magic, but, and ultra-terrestrials, it's more magically oriented than, than um, Secret Cypher as such. Right. This will be oriented towards dissecting the Black Lodge, unless they dissect us first. <laughs> so could you explain for, for our listeners um, in connection with this book, could you briefly sort of describe what you mean by Black Lodge? Obviously, I think a lot of our listeners will be very familiar with Twin Peaks, which is probably a, a decent jumping off point to, to discuss uh, uh, Black Lodge, White Lodge, um, and um, and so on. But um, for, for the people who are listening who will be interested, um, would you be able to explain a little bit about what you mean by those terms? One thing that I'm wrestling with about the title, although I don't get the final say of the title, is I worry that it will be taken as a book on Twin Peaks. And <laughs> some of the feedback yeah. I get on Twitter, you know, it's, um, can't wait for your book on the Black Lodge. Lynch would be bad. Yeah. Lynch, Lynch gets a copy right away because I think that he was spot on. And the Black Lodge is this, what is the best way to explain it? My first interest in the Black Lodge consisted of I in the little newsletter that we were then getting out from Lewis Lodge, of which I was the editor. The Lodge Master at that time said, Alan, advanced at it. Don't that's the Black Lodge. So of course that became a, a major interest for me. But that, that proved to be true. It is not mentioned in contemporary magical circles, hardly at all. So I read everything that I could, and it was all stuff from the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, the underlying theory, as I derived it from, well, mostly polemic sources, but probably derived originally, or if it's a valid point of view, from Golden Dawn or even uh, SRIA, which is the world people, or, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a real thing, then it dates to antiquity. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, the theory is that people who are on the magical path, okay, I, I have a lecture that I give occasionally, you know, alluded to it before, the, the four permutations of the error card, in order to become a magus, which is a very exalted state of consciousness, we're way up the tree of life, you know, or, you know, uh, this sort of in touch with the infinite. Um, you have to also be, at the same time, Integrated with being a Montbank, that's why I don't, you know, chastise Ray Barker for his folkloric approach to the whole UFO thing. You have to be a juggler in the sense that you're seeming to defy reality with a natural skill. You have to be a magician in the sense that I'm a magician. And only then can you even look at the prospect of being a magus, which is uh, something that transcends well, our world. Well, somewhere along that path, we reach 
this is the theory. On, you reach on the tree of life, if written. Right. And to advance further involves transiting the great abyss by the path of Gimel, the camel. So it's literally camel carrying you across the desert. But should you fall, you get devoured by the uh, the Lord of the Abyss, whose name I will not mention because I know the proper pronunciation, and fortunately most people don't, and you become oblivion. You become a non-being. Now, I don't necessarily believe that that's true, but it is something that was purveyed, and where it started, I don't know, but probably in some antique ritual, because if you look in the, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, um, the deceased pharaoh has to go through those kinds of ordeals, and if, they, if he doesn't make it through them, then he gets eaten by one or another of the unpleasant Egyptian underworld gods. So, um, it obviously is something probably that sprang from uh, near-death experiences because just because we discovered them in the 1970s doesn't mean that they haven't happened throughout history. And more often, because a lot of people get revived that otherwise wouldn't, but there are, there are very early cases. So, um, and certainly legendary cases. So, what happens is, some very advanced magicians choose to transit and take the risk of losing all in order to attain, which is supposedly the uh, the goal of all meditation, all magic. Is that the ego death? Yeah. Yeah. Others, either from fear or from the knowledge that they would have to give up power turn to the dark side and they become black magicians. That doesn't mean that they are amateurs or not advanced. That's a very exalted state that they have reached. And they have a vested interest in keeping those behind them from attaining. So the secret chiefs of the third order have attained, but chosen not to go into nirvana, whatever that may be, but instead to take the bodhisattva pledge, to use the Eastern term, and uh, help all sentient beings to ascend successfully. The Black Lodge is dedicated to the opposite. Now, the attained masters are probably no longer uh, embodied. They're no longer uh, physical beings. I think they could choose to be, but they generally do not. That was the secret chiefs of the third order, and that accounts for a good deal of the core teachings in magic and theosophy and a bunch of other things. Um, it also touches on uh, religious uh, opinions, although you never know which you're dealing with. The Black Lodge, on the other hand, is somewhat like they might as well be called demons because once they have attained that fairly exalted state, 
and are committed to not letting others come even as far as they have because they become power hungry and they become, they're afraid of going forward, but they don't uh, want anybody else to go forward either because they're they're not going to. They don't want people or aspirants to outrank them. That is the theory of the Black Lodge. But the question is, is there evidence of the Black Lodge in recent history or in today? That's what the book will address. seen on your twitter and various bits when you talked about the new book um a connection to um portal magic and uh, doppelgangers uh, and also missing persons is is that all discussed in the book or is that sort of disparate elements that i've misunderstood i don't know because what i do is i shift to my publisher a section this section that section the other section and i I have not connected them together. That's that's for the editors to do. So I know what will be in. There will be a section I know on uh, ufologists who have died way before their time, or alternately, older ufologists that have died under mysterious circumstances. Um, that is worth doing. A good example of that would be uh, Ron Bonds, my first publisher. Um, yeah. very mysterious circumstances or Jim Keith, an author that was in that same Illuminate stable uh, died of a sprained ankle at Burning Man come on mm, yeah yeah. doesn't, doesn't yeah. track but Burning Man is a great place to get rid of somebody that's saying some of the things that he was saying very convenient like Frank Edwards died while we were having the 1967 fish. So it's around three in the morning. And in those days, I I, I I kept God's hours. I would get up and loop at night. So I was asleep. And phone rings, and I thought, no, it was Mosley, because he was, it was Barker. He said, Frank Edwards died. That's a shabby, but this is great. It's a shabby way to avoid coming to the convention. <laughs> well, uh, I later found out his last words were to his wife, Mary. Mary, I have the strangest feeling. And mm. So could be normal or could be that, uh, I mean, he has, to my knowledge, the only best-selling book ever written that was on the New York Times bestseller list on UFOs, Flying Saucer, Serious Business, uh, which, uh, and he was also a relatively famous uh, person. He had been uh, 
was he was a network anchor back in the day. And, um, so it, it was a significant death, enough that he makes the list go. He was old enough that people do, I think he was in his 50s, people do die in their 50s, people die in their 20s, people die when they're three years old. But if you look at the circumstances, it's, it's shakier than your average uh, if you to a hospital or Thomas Jefferson still lives, said to be uh, John Adams' last words, his political enemy, which I is generally interpreted as actually uh, Jefferson died that same day. And given the early 19th century, early, um, being a student of near death experiences and uh, experiences of people who are dying. I'm not sure he wasn't actually seeing Thomas Jefferson, who unknown to him had died that same day. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he thought Jefferson was coming to pay a visit. He wow. probably had a shovel in his hand. Get him in the ground. <laughs> so. The, um, we've spoken on on our previous episode about um, Jack Parsons and how he um, supposedly, through the Babylon working, opened a portal in the desert. And do you think there's any other instances uh, where things like that have happened, where there's been occurrences that have caused portal areas, you know, where almost it wasn't a portal area to begin with and someone has done something to make that happen? There are portals that are open from one of the many or infinite, that take your pick, number of other realities, some uh, yeah. beings that, that simply do that. And magicians certainly do open portals. The responsible magician always, like I said, I teach vanishing. And I'm only satisfied that a person has learned banishing and a bit of exorcism. If you don't know how to banish, you shouldn't invoke for people. Because at the end of whatever you're doing, there should be a banishing. And if the banishing doesn't work, there should be an exorcism. Because otherwise, the portal stays open. And I've read, I think, probably everything that Carson's wrote about that work that working. I wouldn't trust anything Hubbard said about it, but I don't believe he ever said anything about it. Um, there's no place where at the very key moment where Parson says, we're done, and they departed the desert. Right out there where the first atomic bombs were set off, that portal is open. And I don't know of other magicians who have maliciously or by uh, neglect let, opened a portal, because you have to be fairly advanced to do that, and left it open. Yeah. In fact, if I found a what I call a spontaneous portal, which would be at the confluence of uh, convergence of ley lines, right, okay. same place you would build a, a, you know, a church or a or Mithraeum or, you know, whatever your particular uh, uh, or a university, I mean, it, 
it depends, but uh, they they converge at very very convenient places. In fact, you mentioned pennyroyal in one of your programs, and uh, yeah, oh, those guys are right in the middle of a of a ley line bonanza. Mm. I mean, Appalachia is just full of ley line convergence points, and where they converge, I think. Usually in some obscure location within that conversion. Uh, if it isn't obscured by uh, a church or a, or a, a landmark of some sort, it is a portal. And I think that the entire Gaber history is not about the inner earth, quote unquote. I use the term because. That's the term that a lot of people use, but I don't think the Earth is hollow. Uh, and I, I think there is strong evidence that it isn't. But I don't disbelieve the people who have, have been in the caves, simply because there are two explanations that I will buy into. One is that caves, caverns, mines, um, the conventional explanation that I would considered uh, tenable would be why miners used to take canaries into the, the mine with them because of the canaries which have sensitive uh, breathing apparatus die they need to get the hell out of there because there was there are gases in mines but a lot of these things are so consistent it's just like yeah i don't encourage people to try but uh, certainly Drug experiences, uh, mostly with strong uh, psychedelics like ayahuasca or DMT uh, or LSD, always have produced the same sort of beings in the supposed visions that people are having um, that um, that show up in UFO cases and in very uh, low, and it's the same. Thing. And to say that it's a, a you know just a product of the mind, well, it must be a product of every mind. You know, it's, it seems like, given the right circumstances, uh, that emerges. So, if mind gases are causing people to see strange things, knockers or cobalts or whatever, maybe that's what they're seeing because. Similar experience, the thing is, like carbon monoxide, you die at the end of it, so you probably don't tell the story, but, you know, those who survive... That kind of links to, um, I mean, possibly what might be happening in in Helia, uh, because obviously they've, they've, there's a strong connection there to the underground, the cave system, the mines, and so on. And um, there's a, a portal... Um, yeah, a possible portal connection there, I think, because in that final episode of Hellier, the last one of season two, um, they uh, it goes into um, you know th- this this idea of this complex numerology that they go through with Te- with John Tenney, and they end up back at your book um, at a specific page, um, which is, is to do with the, uh, the, how to defeat the euphronaut body snatchers law and the battle of conquest written by, or, or mostly written by Terry wrist. Um, and the very v- first 
paragraph that appears on that page is a, a quote from George C. Andrews, which says, the purpose of this series of ceremonies performed by Parsons and Hubbard was to unseal an interdimensional gateway that had been sealed in deep antiquity, thereby allowing other dimensional entities known as old ones access to our space-time continuum. They don't discuss that on Helio. I don't know why, because Parsons is a word that keeps occurring over and over yeah, as they go through their it's investigation. It's on the doorstep, isn't it? It's on the doorstep. It's in the books. It's it's in um, The Rebirth this, of Pan. This chapter is written in a different style, and it's, you know, that's yeah. not my my darker moments, I think the guy who met Terry or whoever, whatever, I'm still using that name in North Georgia, who described him in a somewhat different way, got me to thinking, well, we were a left-wing anarchist collective. It's not like I didn't know, mostly from science fiction circles, right-wing people who had infiltrated the, the counterculture of that period. Maybe his story was completely that, that he represented himself as, well, I don't know that we ever discussed it, but he, he joined our circle. He was never, you know, a mover and shaker, but he was, he came to the, he came to the meetings at the back room of the little five points pub where we met. And everybody who was there, you can't look them up, and I won't tell you, because we all had mountains to hear for the I already cited. This, this idea of there being a gateway, um, I do think it could be relevant to, to what's happening in, in Helia because... I think watching Hellier again and again, you see, I start to see, I think that a lot of the synchronicities are actually happening to Carl Pfeiffer rather than to any of the rest of the, the group. It seems like he's at the center of it. Now, when Lonnie Scott hypnotizes Carl, um, it, uh, I've got a, a transcript of it here. So Lonnie Scott says, what's going on in Hellier? Carl says, there's a gateway. Lonnie says, to what? Carl says, there's other places. Lonnie Scott says, is is it open? Carl says, it's closed. Lonnie says, are you supposed to open it or is it supposed to stay closed? Carl says, we're supposed to open it. Lonnie says, and what happens when that gateway opens? Carl says, they get to come out. That that Does that sound familiar? You know, considering mm-hmm. what George C. Andrews says at the beginning of the chapter that, that is linked yeah. to by the coordinate numbers that they get. You know, and so that suggests to me that the whole thing of Helia that the magical ritual that they're going through is leading to some sort of portal or a ceremony or a ritual to open this portal. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it, there seems to be some connection to the Babylon working there. It, it appears that way. Well, it's, just, it's in the same category. I mean, I, I suspect if what I'm saying is not just, you know, to use the term pipe dreams, you know, um, it probably is something that has repeated many times over by people experimenting with one one way of altering the universe or another.
So, Alan, do you think that Helia could have turned out differently uh, had it not been filmed? As in, if we're thinking of it as, in terms of a uh, like a, an initiation or a magical working, would that have been, would that have turned out the same or perhaps been less effective were there not cameras there and the element of an audience and the element of multiple people from all over the world engaging with it? What do you think? Um, well, turned out differently and not necessarily. I mean, I've done many uh, field investigations and rituals that were not being filmed by anybody. It couldn't be filmed by anybody. I mean, they were uh, part of it. But that doesn't mean that they weren't efficacious for the people involved in them or even people that weren't involved. However, I think the magic that Hellier generated is different from the baseline experience that the Newkirks and their associates uh, had during the course of it. What they did was, and I'm not saying there was no editing because, you know, I judge from what the narrow view of what I saw. Uh, wearing a Hawaiian shirt because I, I don't like seasons other than summer. But uh, I remember something that Greg Newkirk said to me when he first met me. That, uh, I was kind of scared to meet you. But when I saw the Hawaiian shirt, I figured you were okay. <laughs> so I was just going to say that. I think that the fact that it was filmed kind of gave it that quality of something like uh say cosmic trigger or the invisibles where it's it's sort of being put out there into the world and affecting people one is the ritual itself the other is the audience participation mm. the good stuff yeah the audience co-participates eventually and whenever yeah. you see it you know it it, it it has the same ambience that it has when it when it was done, the reality is when you're on the receiving end of an initiation, it's one kind of initiation. On the other hand, if you're the initiator, that's an initiation too. And when I subsequently became an initiator, um, yeah, uh, it's a different experience. So they are the initiators. I mean, you may be right, there may be one person there who's the more active element or, or... I think the, their presentation was so good and so true yeah. to the way field investigations really are, including that there was no, you know, shebang at the end of it. Oh, yeah. you know, ghost hunters type stuff. Oh, well, it is so <laughs> the world, but we'll say it's a ghost. Do the spirit box. Helia looks so good and, and it reached so many people. Um, and got a lot of people interested in this kind of thing. Yeah. I keep finding new people who are enchanted almost the literal meaning of that term. I feel like we're trying to do that as well. Like we're trying to kind of spread the word almost with the podcast and and continue that, you know, we're like another branch of that tree. It seems to be a current, you know, there seems to be something happening at the moment or a wave in the air because I I think that Buckley might have been speaking to you during the week about the film that we watched in Liverpool last week, the Something in the Dirt, which was made by people who hadn't seen Hellier and yet was about uh, synchronicities leading up to some 
paranormal event uh, and so on in a very similar way in a, in a lot of ways to uh, how Helia works. Um, and you can see, um, it, you know, there's, there's a bit of a domino effect, but there's also there's also the, the, the synchronous happening of people who aren't necessarily connected all experiencing the same kind of awakening at the same time, which seems to be happening at the moment, as I think it has done at other times, you know, like perhaps in the 60s um, and, and you know, perhaps with Cosmic Trigger in the 70s and stuff. Um, do, do, can you speak to that at all or, or what is happening to or what you think might be occurring to suddenly bring this current into our reality? Well, I'm not, I'm not a optimist about anything that goes on. I, mean, I, I tend to have a relatively pessimistic opinion, but I don't join the dark side because <laughs> that's not where I am. I'm a defender of Western civilization. If I was 20 years younger, I would be in Ukraine right now. Because, because that is uh, within my belief system, and I think Western Civ is one of the best things that ever happened to the world, and it's in it's in pre-collapse mode. The American experiment is uh, very late in its game. Are you sort of intimating or hinting at the fact that um, Hellier and something in the dirt and all of this that's happening right now could be some sort of ushering in of a new aeon or something like that, or a new way that will replace what, what's what's crumbling, what you say is crumbling at the moment, uh, something else to come into that vacuum? Yeah, I think that that will happen, but that isn't going to happen overnight. You know, there's usually a dark age no. that comes in between before the new. I, I was it pronounced over there. The, the what, sorry? Renaissance? Renaissance, yeah, Renaissance. Renaissance, yeah. <laughs>
So I was going to ask you, uh, Alan, you've given us a lot of really useful information about the cipher and how to use it. And uh, you've stressed the importance of proper field investigations to the integrity of the field of uh, ufology. And I imagine that some of our listeners will go out and grab a copy of the complete cipher if they don't have one already, and will want to start getting their own readings out of it and, uh, and start to do their own research. Uh, c- can you give any advice to anyone planning field investigations into some of this weird stuff? Well, you, you can't do field research uh, cold. If you do it cold, you're apt to get into some kind of trouble. Um, whether it's you know with the phenomena or with locals who often don't like people knocking on their door wearing black coats and black hats and saying, <laughs> "What do you know about?" flying saucers, and or the occult, as they'll swear. The Satanist came to the door, but Jesus saved me, and I'm so grateful. I went over to the Pentecostal church and converted from Methodism. I lived happily ever after. Crazy. Uh, that is really actually there is one place in Hellier where that happens to um, oh, to Tyler Strand yes Tyler yeah. I love Tyler but you don't go knocking on doors when you're walking out of the wilderness and say well this is anything unusual because they smile and call the cops and the cops escorted them to the county line that's a classic one time I was on a ghost hunt this was early in my career, but it wasn't early in Jim Moses' career. So Jim and I and a friend of ours were going to St. Simon's Island, Georgia, an historically important place uh, from the early colonial times. More ghosts than you can shake a stick at, as we say. And uh, so... St. Simon's Island is, you have to go across a marsh. And uh, on our way, uh, I think Mosley was driving, we pass a police car. This is in South Georgia, very South Georgia. Uh, So Mosley stops the car, rolls down the window on the passenger side where the cop was. He said, Excuse me, sir, can you direct us to the uh, uh, Anglican Church, uh, Christ Church, on St. Simon's Island? Because, you see, uh, we're ghost hunters, and we want to go uh. to the graveyard there because that's where the ghosts are. And the cop was just listening, and I, I know I'm sinking down in the back seat looking. But what I know is going to happen doesn't happen, but... I thought, well, Jim's a broker, he doesn't know. You don't do that here. Uh, (laughs) You don't do that. You just don't. So the guy said, oh, well, you know, we had, and this is almost word for word, we had a Bible salesman going through that cemetery last year, and he got shot. (laughs) (laughs) And he gets back in his squad car, and goes on, and we just sat there for a moment. Mostly thought it was just a friendly comment or something. I don't know. I didn't ask him what he I said, uh, Jim, do you know <laughs> what this is all about? 
that was a threat. It was a threat that we should take seriously. Because yeah. you don't you don't say you're a ghost hunter looking for the you know, we had a similar reception from the priest of that, that church. We asked him about a monument that was in that place where I've been there many times, once with my parents in fact. And um, it is haunted. I took a picture of a like a uh, rotting corpse eight feet off the ground. Whoa. By the I mean, this was, you know, classical churchyard, mostly having been a grave robber earlier. And then he says, you know, nothing's going to happen to us here because I'm a psychic negative. And he and the other guy go off exploring the graveyard. I go over, I have a camera, and I thought, if he's a psychic negative, whatever that may be, I'm going to go off by myself and try to call a spirit. And over to the side of the church, which is adjacent to the graveyard. And I snapped a picture, this is a 35 millimeter camera, same one now that I think about it, that I took a picture of the man in black, the somewhat famous photo in a different location, different time altogether. A one second exposure very highly sensitive black and white film. And as I press the shutter and uh, the thought entered my head at that moment, there's going to be something in this photo that I'm not. And when the film came back from the photo lab, that one was undeveloped. So I looked at the negative, and there was something in it. I could see the church, I could see trees. There was a white figure. So I had that developed. Actually, my mother had it. Wow. And um, it looks like what they say the ghost in that graveyard is, which is uh, the wife of one of the uh, priests of that church from... 1870s, who had died young and was interred in the graveyard, only it was as a rotting corpse. And I showed it to various people. I uh, uh, showed it to, uh, in those days, in the days of that the film, they, uh, I don't know if they still do that, but Eastman Kodak had a person who was just to take anomalous photos and run it through whatever magic they run it through and say what this is. They had no idea. I think it's obviously important always to uh, to prepare well for your field uh, research because you just don't know what's uh, what, what you might come up against. But I think we're going to have to... Uh, We've kept you for for, for hours, and, and it's yeah, very. It seems like only for, for for listeners <laughs> here, um, it's it's what what is it at the moment for you? About seven o'clock in the morning, or something, or six o'clock in the morning. Um, Sixteen. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. But, so we really really appreciate. <laughs> we really really appreciate your time. It's been absolutely amazing. When we first set yeah. up Vase, and and we had no idea what it was going to be, whether it was going to be a podcast or some sort of blog or how we were going to do it. The one thing we knew was that we wanted to get 
Alan Greenfield involved. And so that's happened today. Yeah. We're going to have to rethink our whole point of face. You know, what, what does face <laughs> mean now that we've spoken to Alan Greenfield? Um, so yeah. we're going to link to your Twitter feed. Uh, we're going to link to your books. Um, if you want to follow Vase, we're at Vase, then Vase spelt backwards on Twitter and Instagram. That's uh, at V-A-Y-S. E-S-Y-A-V um, and you can email us on vaseinfo at gmail.com Alan, uh, would you like to recommend any of your books to our listeners or any other books by anyone else who you think might give them a good grounding? You mean other people write books too? <laughs> people who listen <laughs> to our podcast, good. hopefully <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a tough question actually Can I plug a film? Yeah. It is an yes, idea. please My son Alex uh, grew up with all this stuff he does uh, Lovecraftian stuff. This film is not out yet, but it is done. I mean, it's major cast. Yeah. All lullaby. lullaby. And the closest I've seen, I mean, I've seen the rushes on but the closest I've seen in a, an existing film to accurately depict magical workings is... Uh, Sort of an analog of the uh, Abermellon work, uh, uh, Dog Song. Okay. And this movie that you're mentioning sounds like something I would want to see. But Lullaby, uh, if it is as I expect it to be, is uh, an accurate depiction of uh, a magical entity and I, that's probably all i can say and probably more than i should say so that's sounds fantastic. Alex greenfield and uh and uh, has some major uh actors in it including uh i forget her name but uh, a lady that uh was the uh, victim in game of thrones at the red wedding so bloodiest scene in the whole eight years that they were doing with them. So, we talked a lot about the complete secret side for the youth and that's basically been our running theme. But I really would urge people who have an interest in uh, serious magic to read The Grail Within. It's a very explicit book. It's uh, it's fairly new. There was a unpublished edition of 93 copies, which is one of those secret things, uh, signed and numbered uh, earlier and given only to people who I consider to be high initiates. So it was uh, uh, nothing is taken out. In fact, things are added into this uh, published edition. And it really, in my opinion, I haven't read every book on the subject, but I believed it. Um, it's the only book on Western sexual magic that talks about my own experiences in some uncomfortable detail. Uh, people talk about it theoretically, and I give the theoretical stuff probably more than I should, but... Uh, I'm not obligated to keep any secrets. In fact, I don't think there are any secrets anymore. But there are, there is nothing about practice. That's what I like about Hellier because it shows 
uh, it shows field research as it really is, not as it's displayed on you know, on the telly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely link to to uh, to the Grail Within and a few of your other books as well, uh, because I, I can recommend uh, a few uh, sources and sorcerers as well. Uh, I think uh, people should be reading that, and uh, we'll we'll do a, a good list of of your books, and uh, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Just while we're on the topic of films, if there was a film to be made about the Alan Greenfield story about your life, who would play you? Which actor would play Alan Greenfield? Uh, that's something I've never been asked. <laughs> I was hoping that. <laughs> Do you not fancy Richard Gere? <laughs> no. I, and I certainly don't fancy Richard Gere being John Keel. You know, the thought is appalling. Yeah, I didn't know John Keel. Jerry Clark once said to, to me and several other people, if anybody in this field is one of them heal James died took him to lunch once in the flying saucer restaurant in what was then the biggest building in downtown Atlanta and as it rotated around and we brought our lunch he had the call to say I don't really like food <laughs> so it's just like food. I kept my manners but I thought what a rude bastard. And the no, interesting thing no. is, he was in Atlanta to do a lecture that I had persuaded my dad to fly him down and give him pounds of tickets and probably give him some money. I don't remember, but he was, you know, his lecture was great, great time. Bellbinding. The way he was in private, you know, and most he used to rave about. Can read this guy. Can read this guy. And he was right. Mostly he was right. Man, they'll find it. But he doesn't like food. Something wrong, clearly. Uh, at the end of his visit, he said, I, I'm going to rent a car to go back. I said, You have a return flight? Now, I want to go to West Virginia to see about stuff going on there. And the rest, as they say, is. History, history, history. <laughs> I don't know if that was his first trip there, but I do know that he went out of his way to go by car. And honestly, I didn't call Gray. I said, Gray, when he gets, find out what hotel he's staying and give him a, a call from our friend, Indrid. Mr. Gear, you're not the one. The one is the guy that doesn't like food. Yeah, that's fantastic yeah, Alan we, we really appreciate your time and um, and most of all your wisdom you know these are questions that we've been wanting to ask you and we'll no doubt come to you with more questions um, in the future um, it's it's just been fantastic it's been a great experience we've really enjoyed it we've learnt a lot and we've had a lot of laughs so thank you very much My thank you so pleasure. much and unlike most of the systems like Zoom and stuff I don't know how to exit them so it's always awkward but i see a big orange thing with a phone and i think that'll take me off i think that's it so that's the one et phone home <laughs> yeah thank you Alan. <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's a ufo it's got a beam of some <laughs> 
<laughs> Amazing. That was incredible. <laughs> that was so good. The Wizard, the Wonderful Wizard of Oz. <laughs> 